It is good to serve a good God and to be here together and above all to hear his word. I invite you to turn in your Bible, if you have it with you, to the book of 2 Thessalonians, or you can just uh, read from the screen, and as we hear it, we're hearing from chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, we'll jump right in there and then uh, carry on with hearing what God has to say for us today. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I want to start just by saying how grateful I am that you are here. For those of you who are worshiping online, I'm so grateful that you are there. I know it's not easy. When we do this week in and week out, it's easy to take for granted uh, all that goes into it. I know firsthand that it's, it's not easy to wake up uh, on time on Sunday morning when you have the option of not doing so. If you've got kids that you had to get here, you had to get them to the bare minimum threshold of properly dressed and get them out the door, maybe even get some food. If you are at home, all the more temptation to, uh, to not fuss with trying to figure out the live stream, especially after last week. We had a few issues. Sorry about that. It, it's, it's a... It, it's not a simple thing. I don't take it for granted. Just a few weeks ago, I was talking with a, a friend uh, who told me about a Sunday morning experience at his own home. His wife came into the bedroom like around seven in the morning and said, hey, honey, it's time to get up. We got to get to church. Come on, wake up. And he just kind of stayed there. Uh, 10 minutes later, she came in and like, no, no, really, we are going to be late. You need to get out of bed. And that's when they got to, to kind of arguing. He said, you know, I, I just, I don't want to today. Half the time we go to church, it is boring. And the other half time when we go, I feel like everyone is judging me. Besides, there's a pandemic going on. Why should we bother? To which his wife replied, you know, first of all, one reason we should bother is because that's what we do in this household. And second of all, you're the preacher. That's actually a very old preacher joke. Some of y'all saw the, uh, the punchline coming from a mile away, and I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to apologize for telling a corny old preacher joke. As I understand it, that's part of my job. Part of my job is to tell old jokes. One of the reasons for that is because we, as the church are trying to form a relationship with one another. We are uh, trying to form the bonds of friendship or even family that that make one the church. And this is how it is in any relationship. Uh, Every old joke is new to someone. And it is in telling some of these old jokes that we again to begin to acquire the common language. We, we have shared memories, we have shared experience, we have shared stories. So every once in a while, I've got to tell some of the old jokes so that everybody can be introduced to them. And so we can have them in common. And also don't mind sharing this particular old joke because it reminds us that 
Some of the oldest and, uh, or some of the most common complaints about church are also some of the oldest ones. They are not as new as we would like to think they are. It does not make you particularly enlightened or edgy or cool or as if you're saying something no one has ever said before. If you find yourself saying sometimes, you know, church could be a little bit more exciting. It's not quite what I wanted it to be. It's not quite the same as the rock concert that I went to two weeks ago or whatever. People have been getting bored in church for millennia now. We have a story from the book of Acts chapter 20 about a guy named Eutychus, who we are told was at a church meeting one night. The apostle Paul was preaching. He went on a little bit long, and Eutychus, he'd had a big day. He'd had a long day. It wasn't quite grabbing his attention, so Eutychus started to fall asleep during the sermon. The only problem that they tell us about in the book of Acts is that Eutychus was kind of seated in a window, and in the ancient Near East, windows didn't have glass in them. It was open, and so as he fell asleep, we are told in Acts chapter 20 that Eutychus fell asleep and then fell out the window and fell three stories to the ground below. People have been getting bored in church for a very long time. The book of Acts, the Holy Scriptures are telling us about this time that the preacher went on a little too long and it had deadly effect. The story ends with Paul coming downstairs and seeing the dead body of Eutychus and reviving it, which is not a spiritual gift God has ever given me, reviving dead bodies. So that's why I only preach on ground floors. There's another complaint about the church, that it can be dangerous or uncomfortable. We might hear something that troubles us. We might feel like somebody's got it out for us. It might be the word from the preacher. It might be something we hear from, from somebody in a, in a small group, something that challenges us, something that, that stirs us up. This reading that we had today comes from Second Thessalonians, and it, it reminds us that there's never been a time when church was comfortable when it wasn't dangerous. The, the book of 2 Thessalonians opens right at the very beginning in chapter one, verse four, with Paul saying, I proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness in all the persecutions and the hardships you are suffering. And please note that Paul is not just complimenting the church for the way they endure the hardship. He says, I point you out to all the other churches and I say, this is what it's gonna be like. He says, you see how hard a time they're having? You see how willing they are to be uncomfortable, how willing they are to meet even when it's not easy, even when they are persecuted? Yeah, that's what you can look forward to, other churches. I've enjoyed living in 2 Thessalonians this week because it is a reminder that being the church has never been safe. It's never been particularly comfortable. It's a clarifying reminder for me. And, and this time, when things can get a little confused, when we can get a little confused about what we're doing, about why we're doing it throughout this pandemic, for instance, it's been tempting to think that at the moments when we have had kind of our sternest restrictions, our, our, our uh, most difficult limits on, on our worship, it's been tempting to think that we were doing these things, taking on these different precautions to keep ourselves safe. But of course, when the early church gathered, it was anything but safe for them to do so. They did not particularly wait until it was safe to gather. No, when we have had our most austere restrictions, it was precisely because we wanted to work for the good of our community. We didn't want a plague to come through our gathering so that we, Dolphin Way, could be a part of the, the healing of the world around us. I hope we're not confused, though, about what we are looking for. I hope we're not looking for the day when church feels especially safe or comfortable 
when we know that there's no danger at all, that we will walk out of it changed in any way. I hope that we will only ever ask, what will God do today? What will help our church accomplish God's purpose? And then I hope we'll do everything in our power to live that out, even when it seems a little risky or uncomfortable. So these have been the two of the oldest complaints about the church, that it, it can be a little bit less exciting than we wanted it to be, that it can be a little bit uncomfortable or challenging or, or maybe even risky. But there is another very old complaint about the church, and I think it is the more serious one. It is the one we should actually try to avoid at all costs. The other complaint is that the, the church is no different than any other human enterprise, that most of our claims that we make in the church about truth and transcendence are really about something else. Round about Easter, got a phone call from a friend of mine who had been burned by the church that he once loved. He's attending a different church now, a church that does everything differently than the church he used to go to, but he's been there a little bit and he's got some of the old questions that he had at the last one. Do I really belong here? Or am I just carrying out somebody else's vision? He asked things like, is this church being led by the spirit or by the donors? He asked things like, is this church just a different political party at prayer than the last one I attended? There's no escaping the human element of the church. It's always been there. It's there also in the book of Acts from the very beginning. You can read in the book of Acts how the early church nearly tore itself apart in the very earliest days over the question of who got served and when. We're told that when we started in Acts chapter two, everyone had everything in common and each one was provided for according to their need. But by Acts chapter six, we find a conflict where it turns out that the Greek-speaking widows within the church are being provided less fully for than those who are of Jewish background. And people come and they complain and they raise this to the apostles and they say, look, we've got some of our old prejudices and our old biases and they... This is not who we're supposed to be. And then there was this one time that uh, Paul was writing to a church, a different church than the church in, Thessal uh, in Thessalonica that we read about today. He was reading to the church in Philippi. And as he was writing to the church there in Philippi, uh, the church there had complained to Paul. They said, just so you know, Paul, there are people here who we think are not in this for the right reasons. Paul wrote back and said, yeah, I know. He said, I know that there are people who preach Christ out of their own ambition. There are others who preach for glory. Some who preach just because they enjoy causing trouble. I don't know. I sometimes suspect that about some churches in the world. I don't always handle it as graciously as Paul did when he responded to them and says, yes, I have known all this. He says, but it, and it is true that some people preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others, though, out of goodwill. Then Paul says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Paul knew full well that there will always be flaws in the church, that there will always be mixed motivations, Paul went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the apostle Peter, arguing with him over how the Gentile-speaking, or the Gentile and Greek-speaking Christians should be treated compared with those who were from the Hebrew background. 
And of course, Jesus once described the church by saying the kingdom of God is like a field in which wheat was planted alongside the weeds. And God, the field owner said, let them grow up together. So there is nothing new or edgy or enlightened about saying that the church is flawed, that it's all too human. We've always had our flaws. They have been easy to see throughout history. They're easy to see today. But for all the flaws of the church, in today's passage, Paul says he sees something else as well, something that sets the church apart. He insists that the church has a share in the glory of God. And glory, that's the word that is used for the the tangible, visible, overwhelming presence of God. That is what Paul sees in the church, the light that fills every darkness. And so, if Paul can see all the humanness in the church and still find God in it, And surely that's the call for us today, is to ask, where do we see God in the church? This question we'll take on this morning, and it's related to the question we're taking on throughout this month, the question of where is God? At the end of this month, we'll have the Reverend Dr. Tom Long, who's coming to give our Dill lecture. If you've never heard Tom Long preach, you are in for a treat. We are going to be mindedly blessed. And then that evening, he's going to offer a keynote lecture to help us think through where is God in the midst of suffering? And as we are leading up to that, Woods and I are preaching on the theme of where is God in a number of other places. Last week, we looked at one of the first places most people go when they want to find God, when they are looking for God. We talked about where is God in the Bible? I think those are probably the two most common questions people ask about how they can find God. How can I find God in the scriptures? How can I find God in the midst of suffering and in the midst of crisis? But this morning, I want us to think a little bit about what it means that we consider and look for God's presence in the church. Because if you would know God's presence in your life, if you want to know where God is, the first thing you need to know is that the church belongs just as much to God's plan and purpose and authority as the Bible does. In our culture of of radical individualism and of consumer choice, we we can be tempted to reduce the essentials of knowing God's presence in our life to saying, it's just me and my Bible. But of course, when God sent the Holy Spirit into the world at Pentecost, God did not start by sending a law book from the mountaintop as he did with Moses. The first act of the Holy Spirit was to give birth to the church. And the church was the place, the book of Acts tells us, where there was a new kingdom that could be seen, a new nation, a people that were made up of all the nations. And the book of Acts chapter two describes it this way. It says that the the church was the place where Parthians and Medes and Elamites, where folks from Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Cretans and Arabs and visitors from Rome all found themselves devoted to the same teaching and to the fellowship. And it was the place where they held all things in common and broke bread together and they devoted themselves to prayer. That's what it looked like when the Holy Spirit was given to the world. It looked like church. And of course, if not for the church, we wouldn't even have the scriptures, at least not as we do now. We wouldn't have any part of the New Testament. Every one of the books in the New Testament was written to the church, was written for the good of the church. 
Every one of those books was, was passed around by the churches, and over time, they began to say and collectively agree. They said, this is the true witness to who Jesus Christ is. But that didn't happen for about 300 years. The books were written, but no one sat down and said, okay, these are the ones we trust, until the church came together and said, this is the faithful witness we have to who Christ is. And in the Bible, in the New Testament, particularly in the letters of Paul, like the one that we read today, we find that over and over again, the topic of highest concern for the early church was who should we be? I think you can basically boil down the, the New Testament into to two themes, who is Jesus and who should the church be? Those are the two questions they are asking at every single turn. Paul described the church as the body of Christ, the living, moving, acting presence of Jesus in the world. And for the writers of the scriptures, you simply couldn't call yourself a Christian unless you were living in a covenant relationship with other Christians. And that relationship committed to a common purpose and practice is what we call church. And as Paul looks at the church there in Thessalonica, a church that has taken tremendous risks for, the, for God's purpose, a church that has been persecuted and harassed and that has dealt with internal conflict, God has used them, and Paul insists that even after all that, he can still see glimpses of God's presence in their gathering. And he says, I see it particularly in two places, in your sanctification and in your commitment to the truth. Hear this again from verse 13. He writes, we give thanks for you because God chose you as the first fruits of salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Sanctification and truth. Those are two things that our world today has a very difficult time believing in. Even Christians, it seems to me, have a difficulty with sanctification and the truth. There was a time when any street preacher in any town, any uh, outpost in America could have preached on the topic of sanctification, but now I would imagine most Christians haven't heard the word in years. And as for truth, you might have noticed that's a topic of some debate these days. Who can we trust to give it? Does it even exist? Is everything just a power game? between those who are trying to determine for someone else what is true. But this morning, we can stake our claim to both. And we can do so in the confidence that we have been giving an identity in Christ through the church that calls us to do something and to offer something in the world that no one else can. That we believe we can find God in the work of the church if only we are willing to look. And the first place that we look according to Paul, as he writes to the Thessalonians, is in sanctification. To be sanctified is to be holy. Can you repeat that for me? Sanctified means holy. And to be holy is to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be given a purpose in God's holy work. We can find God anywhere, but we find it find God's presence particularly powerfully in the holiness of God's church. That word sanctification, obviously it has the same root as the word sanctuary. And whenever you think of a sanctuary, I'm sure you think of a place that is somehow a little bit different than all the others. It is somehow set apart. 
that's certainly what I've heard over the last few months is it's been, we've had the great joy of seeing people come back into worship here in person for the first time. How many people have told me the first time they stepped through one of our doors, it is good just to be back in this place. We know, we know that the building is not the actual throne room of heaven. We know that the church is the people, right? But we know also that there is something unique and special about a place that is set apart. And that's who we are called to be, to be holy and set apart. We come to this place and it seems a little bit different to us, not because everything is perfect in the way we often think of perfection, that that everything is flawless. I guarantee there will always be at least one spotlight that is out and we will probably always have some issue with our live stream. As soon as we fix one, it'll be the next one. We are... This place is not perfect in the sense of being flawless. But there is something about it that speaks to us of perfection in the way the Hebrew people would have understood it, of completeness, of being wholly dedicated to the purpose for which you were made. It's one of the silly little things about our, our sanctuary over the, across the way is uh, that everything in it has this special name. Uh, and it's one of the, my quirky little things that I like learning them. It wasn't until I came to Dolphin Way that I learned that the space that you walk around behind a sanctuary is called an ambulatory. I had Kathy Jorgensen teach me that. And if you go in that place, you'll see that every single thing has some sort of Latinate old name that lets you know it's not like the other ones. In any other place, we would call it a stage, but in there, they call it a chancel. <laughs> Any other place we'd say you sit in pews or you sit in benches, but if it's in a church, we call it a pew. Only thing in our sanctuary we don't have a special fancy name for is the things they use to light the candles, those brass things with wax. You might have seen them before. You know what those are called? Those are called candle lighters. (laughs) I don't know why. I don't know why of all the things that was the one we couldn't come up with a Latin name for. Here in our contemporary service, we don't tend to use Latin names but we still have this sense of things being set aside and dedicated to a purpose. I mean, someday you ought to just, with Wilson's permission, walk behind this wall and see the racks and the shelves and everything put in just its place. Go to our live stream room and see all the the faithful labeling that has been done by the incredible volunteers of this church who have made it so that every single thing, every single cable is identified for its purpose and everything is geared to make sure that every word of the songs and of the scriptures can be heard just the way we needed it to. And I love that we have this culture here at, at Dauphin Way where uh, in our contemporary service at the end, we all know part of our purpose at the end of it all is to, to put the chairs away. We all have a purpose. So we all have a task and a mission from God. Everything here is geared for a specific purpose. And I can't help but wondering what it would be like, what God could do with the church if every single person in it knew that they were set apart, that they were sanctified, that they had been called and put to a holy mission and purpose, even much more than the equipment around here that we treat with such care. A little later in the book of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Paul will mention that he has heard that some members of the church there in Thessalonica are not quite on board with the same purpose as others. He says, we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work, meddling in other people's business. But if we truly have that one purpose to which we are all committed, then we don't have time for that kind of meddling. If we have one purpose, then it's going to draw us together from wherever we are and give us 
one destination, though we come from all manner of places. In a world that is rife with demographic division, we can see all ages and nations and races becoming one in Jesus Christ. And when our neighbors are looking for a church where they can find God, they are looking for someone who can tear down the walls that we so easily build for ourselves. Our neighbors are looking for people who are living up to the command that Paul gives in Philippians 2 when he challenges the church and says to them, work out your salvation for it is God who works in you so that you might know and will his good pleasure. A sanctified church is one that has set itself to a common purpose and common mission and that has dedicated itself to doing the work of God. We all have a part to play. We all have a calling. We all have been set apart for the work of God. And part of that work, part of that purpose of God is to tell the truth. Paul gives us a sense of the truth that he's talking about when he says, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that we passed on to you, whether by word or by letter. Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions. I know that isn't true in this service, but sometimes when people worship with the word contemporary, there can be a bit of a, a hang-up, a concern about that word tradition. Doesn't mean unblinking devotion to what has gone before. It doesn't mean that we always have to do it the exact same way that we did before, but it does mean this. When we in the church talk about tradition, we're talking about our absolute conviction that every truth has a history. Truth is what we test and we prove over time. It's what remains from all our best guesses and our best ideas. It is our best efforts that we have put before God and when they have run the course, we as the church have said, this is where we have seen God. I love how Paul describes the traditions as those things that have been passed down by word of mouth or by letter. Because the letters, of course, are what we call our New Testament. And you would think that would be enough. Isn't the Bible enough to know the tradition of God? But in addition to the Bible, I am convinced, because the Bible tells me so, that every generation needs someone or several someones to show them how to read their Bible, for instance. And more importantly, how to live their Bible. And God is at work in that interplay between the generations, each one learning from one another. The old hands reminding us that we didn't make this up while the young, fresh legs remind us that God is not yet done telling the story. Paul has been that kind of guide to the young church in Thessalonica and now he is passing on that task to the church just as the truth was passed to him. Tell the truth. Be a people who live the truth. Be a people who know from experience how to live out what they have heard. And if you, looking around, wonder where God can be, is, you can begin by looking wherever you see God's people united in a common purpose, passing truth down to the generations, and sharing with one another the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, and see them marveling together at what that means. And rather than seeing the human element as the flaw in the church, 
as the reason to hold it at arm's distance or stay away. It can become the unique and precious gift to us. Because if a flawed church can still carry the presence of God, then a flawed person can too. And as we bring our whole selves to this task, not flawless, but completely devoted to God, we don't just show others where God is. We come to know God by experience as he encourages our hearts and as Paul told us, God strengthens us in the moment for every good word and deed. Would you pray with me?